You know, uh, as we gather together in here, get to look around and see um, Ian and Cherie. You're back from your honeymoon. Where are you? Ian and Cherie, where, where are you? Thinking? There we go. Big smiles over there. So welcome home. Congratulations. Glad for you guys. Terrell, you are going in the Air Force. You're leaving for boot camp, right? This week. So yeah, so we're proud of you and glad you're here with us today. So y'all just, I know we've got some Air Force folks in here. So make some good encouragement. You're sitting in front of a huge veterans advocate and Joe Madigan right there. He's probably reaching for a, a check right now to give you. But uh, anyway, so uh, um, anyway, we're proud of you. And, uh, and I, I look around, I keep thinking there's so many things I could say thank you for in every area. Charlotte Moore is at home. You all know she's uh, someone, um, middle-aged person on her way to church. Uh, Next thing you know, she's the hospital, full open heart surgery. And so went by and saw her yesterday. And so she is home. And some of you guys are going to build a step for her so she can get up in her house a little easier. Thank you for that. I want to thank you for all the things that you've done that don't reflect on a number sheet like you know you see that bulletin we put we start putting our building fund on there because we want to kind of know where we're getting closer to the next phase but things you don't see are what we saw at work days and you know this week we're in a temporary location we were told in seven days we had to move our nursery facility by the landlord here and so we moved one room which is a good size rooms into another area it's a good size area and we had to paint the old rooms and go in and paint the new rooms and clean the carpet and reset everything and tear everything down. We had over 20-something volunteers come in to paint last week and, and move things and install cameras. Uh, and, and I can't begin to thank you all enough for doing that. So that's all done on us. And then um, we had a work day yesterday. And so that went incredibly well. We're getting our church property ready. And so we went out there, we mowed, we cleaned, we... Um, we burned everything we, we cut down legally or illegally we don't know but we did it and we got a lot done and, uh, and I saw you guys out there in tractors and you brought your own mowers and I just again I thank you for everything you've done somebody asked me the other day they said hey how's it going building the church and I was like oh it's really cool we're trying to figure out what to do with kids and we're trying to figure out how to get a youth ministry going we're trying to he said no I was talking about the building I was like oh that wasn't how I took it if you asked me we're building a church. It has nothing to do with brick and mortar. What's going to go on out there is a, is a fruit of what we're doing here. And so I just thank you guys. A lot of you guys have joined recently. So we've been very patient. We're waiting for Jeff Amon to get back in town and do an introduction to you guys and a, a lineup. And, uh, and so we'll be doing that soon. So with that, let me go ahead and, and pray. And then we'll jump into the message, okay? Father, we thank you for uh, today. Lord, we thank you for beauty of um, being able to open up your word, the beauty of us being able to understand it. God, please speak through me. Don't let me be a distraction. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week we were almost done with John chapter 15. If you're new to us and how our preaching style is this, we're a teaching church and meaning we go through every verse of, so we, of, the, of a book that we're teaching through. Um, so we're in the book of John right now. We're going to finish John chapter 16. We opened up with John 15 last week. I left a couple of verses that kind of pertain to this. It's very critical to understand when the Bible was written, verse structure and chapter structure was not there. That was added later. So if you're not careful, you're going to look at, oh, there's John chapter 16, a whole new story, a whole new thought. Not at all. It's a continuation of what's been going on for a few chapters. So 
Where we left off was there was an upper room setting that Shale opened up with earlier in, in this upper room setting. And, and then you start to see as... As time went on, this upper room, Judas's betray, uh, betrayal, you saw uh, the confusion, the kind of the, the almost chaos of the disciples being upended and uprooted from their security, going, what are we going to do? Keep talking about leaving. What do you mean by this? They walked out, and they're walking down an area we know probably to be near a vine, because Jesus says, it's, behold, it's like me. There's like this vine, you know, I'm the vine, my father's a vine dresser, you're the branches. So they're outside, probably walking down alleys into different courtyards. And so here is this place. He's just said, I'm going somewhere. Can't tell you where I'm going. They're confused. Now, I don't know about you and I, but I, like when you watch a football game, I mean, I get excited watching football. Probably not as religiously as David Edwards over there who has a cult problem watching the Eagles. But, but you watch football and you start to scream at the TV. David, do you not scream at the TV? You know it. We, we all do. We all do. I've heard my dad speak many languages watching the lightning. You know? so, I mean, you watch these games. And, but you know what always amazes me is that I'll be next to someone who's never picked up a football, who is an expert, ever. Oh, they should be doing this and this and this. And I'm like, where were, you, where were you? What are you talking about? They know it all. And if we're not careful, we adapt the same mentality as a church when we Monday morning quarterback on the disciples here. Oh, doubting Thomas, the poor man. You know, you know Thomas was inquisitive. Everybody else was hearing, well, Jesus is saying, I'm going somewhere. Doubt Thomas was asking, where are you going? Yeah, we, we're going to see... Disciples that are confused. Oh, the poor disciples are confused. Well, absolutely. These poor guys are getting crazy messages in an intense pattern of time. Jesus knows at any minute he's going to be arrested. He knows at this point as he's walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane, there is a party of vigilantes, religious vigilantes, and people getting together and coming together to go out and arrest him. And he knows it's coming. He doesn't have long. He doesn't have a three-pointed sermon. He doesn't have a moment to sit everybody down and explain. They're walking towards a place where everything is going to change. So in all the question of, what are we going to do? Where are you going? Jesus says in John 15, verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And so what he's saying here is this. I'm going to leave, there's somebody coming alongside that is going to be called your helper. This helper is going to come alongside you and be with you in a way that only you will... I can't begin to tell you that this helper is somebody who's not just a helper. He's not just somebody who's going to give you aid. He's going to be your comforter. Called the Holy Spirit also a paraclete when it comes alongside. A counselor. He says, I am going to leave this. And by the way, catch this now in verse 26. But when the helper comes, who I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of the truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will also bear witness about me. Don't miss the constant reference to the Trinity. You see the Trinity constantly being engaged. It, it, and so he's saying there's somebody coming alongside. This helper's going to be there. And then he goes into verse, in, uh, verse 1 of chapter 16. Here we are. I have said all these things to you 
to keep you from falling away. Do not, do not lose the fact that they are totally confused. He is saying at this point, don't fall away. Had he said this three months ago, what are you talking about? Oh, we would never leave you. He looks around the place and he sees in this, in this area they're walking, men are confused. They're agonizing over what's going to happen. Who wants to be arrested, much less killed? And Jesus says, I don't want you to fall away. Don't worry about this. And then he goes to verse 2. He says, by the way, the most understated verse, I think, in the book of John as a Jewish believer. Here it is. You ready for this? Verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Now, first of all, we'll talk about the hour is coming. Throughout Scripture, you constantly see Jesus making this remark. He heals someone. They go, oh, I can't wait to go. No, hour's not here. Don't say anything yet. And all of a sudden, you see him bring out demons out of this man. And... and he says, don't say anything. Then there are demon-possessed people who see him. And they, by the way, this is one of the things that really kind of got me as a, to be a believer. The demons in his village saw him coming and they started calling out his title, that he was the Christ. He had not identified himself as the Christ yet. And he this is the Christ, that's the Christ. And Jesus looked at him and he said, and you'll say nothing of it. Why? The hour had not yet come. Well, when you start to see in John 17 next week, Shale starts to preach in John 17. You're going to see he's going to, in the middle of this prayer, he's going to say, the Father, the hour has come. So don't miss that when you see this, this rich description of, of a timeline that Jesus is walking through. But also, don't forget, and don't miss in this verse, how heavy these words are. They will put you out of the synagogues. These men never even thought they could have a dialogue with a rabbi or a priest. And now all of a sudden they're walking in synagogues and people are turning in droves to listen to them. And now he says they're going to put you and kick you out of the synagogue. For you and I, what does that mean? You get like, oh, you get kicked out of a church? You know what you're going to do? Why well, go to another church? I'll watch it on TV. Do whatever you want to do. Not in this case. You are going to be put out of the synagogue. That means you have lost your place to worship. You have lost your social status. You have lost where you're... You are no longer going to be given burial rights. No one will touch your service. No one will bury you in any capacity. You cannot even be buried in a cemetery with other Jews. You're going to lose everything you have. And if that wasn't enough... Oh, by the way, when they kick you out of the synagogues and now said, when you die at the hands of those who believe they're doing good for God. I mean, if I looked at you and said today, oh, by the way, you will, you will perish. You are going to die because there is some jihadist out there who in the name of his God is going to come kill you. And there's nothing you can do about it. If you think for a second there's going to be doubt from these men can we give them some a little bit of credit to realize you've just been told your entire earthly existence materialistically I took away from you 
from your career. Now I gave you faith to walk in synagogues as, I mean, as one of my chief lieutenants and quartermasters. And now all that's gone. And oh, by the way, you'll meet a, your murderer will say they're doing good for God and they won't. That is their, <laughs> that is what they gathered from verse 2. So these men, there's no reason, there's no doubt they're sitting there thinking, well, what are we going to do? This is why Jesus is saying in the previous verse, I know what you want to do. Don't fall away. Verse 3. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? Okay, back up to verse 4. Go back to the end of verse 4. This is critical because I want you to picture this. Jesus, when he, when, when he called his disciples, what did he tell them? Oh, you're going to see great marvelous things. You're going to see the Son of Man ascending and descending upon, uh, the, uh, you know, angels descending and descending upon the shoulders of man. You're going to see miraculous things. You're going to see the blind restored sight. You're going to see the dead walk and rise up. You are going to see incredible things. Was he dangling a carrot in front of their face to say, now I'm leaving you? No, he said this. He said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Don't miss those verses. If you've ever had someone that protected you, and shielded you, and was there for you. And someone that looked over and said, there is no one ever going to get to you through me. This is, this is what Jesus is saying. I told you these things. Why? I'll tell you why. Because nothing was going to happen to you while I was here. I, mean, I don't know about you, but I would have just wondered what it would have been like to see a temple guard come after one of the disciples. And what Jesus would have done. No one's going to touch you. But now he says, I'm not going to be here. And they're looking at him thinking, you're leaving us. You brought us up here. And now we've lost. Now we're going to lose any religious legacy left that we have. Now we're going to be totally removed from society. And now we're going to be killed by somebody who says they're doing it under religious values. Why would you do this? But in verse 5, did you catch this? Jesus says, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask where I am going. None of you. Here's what I want you to take away. Not the disciples' grief and sorrow and doubt. None of that. I mean, I would say you take away some, but I want you to take away is this. The confidence that Jesus says, no matter what your doubt is, no matter how afraid you are, and no matter how much you fail to reciprocate that, I am there for you. None of you have asked how I'm doing, Jesus says. None of you, by the way, have inquired as to where I'm going. But what? Jesus is going to the cross. and doesn't stop him. I mean, fleshly, if you were some leader by flesh, at some point, you would break down. You'd look around at someone and say, can one of you not ask how I'm doing? Can not one of you say to me that you care about me? Are you going to ask, am I going to be in, in pain? Am I going to be tortured? How long will it take me? Is, will one of you ask those questions? Not one have asked that question. And yet, what is his response? He keeps moving towards the cross. 
you know as well as I do that if you have a prayer life that's being effective from being real, and you're like, you know what, I'm just not praying like I should, I guarantee you it has nothing to do with you loving people, you giving money, you serving in any way. It has everything to do with you feel like you've neglected God. I haven't brought God into anything in my life. I mean, as a matter of fact, everything I've done is probably against what he would have me do. And so how would you even think to pray? That blind ignorance needs to fall away. Here's a picture of Jesus around the 12, uh, now 11 of the closest men in his life on this earth. And not one of his closest friends have asked him, are you going to be okay? And what was his response? To take him, them along on the journey. Didn't say you don't have a right to ask. He didn't say, how dare you? That is the love of Jesus. That is the love that these men are following. That is the love that you and I have a chance to follow. Verse 6. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So again, I want you to picture this. Always ask, here's what, now what, so what, when you're reading scripture. Ask yourself this question. What does he mean? Sorrow has filled your heart. He's not saying, I see you're upset. I see some of you are kind of crying. I see some of you are nervous. You know, he goes, sorrow, I've said these things because sorrow has completely filled your heart. These men are at the lowest place you can go. You know, it's hard to imagine being sick when you feel healthy, right? It's really hard to imagine what it means to be full of sorrow with feel like everything's lost. You go to court, you get in trouble, you go to court, you are a wreck, a wreck. You are brought into a place where you cannot control. You're brought into a place where people control you. And you're sitting there and you're watching and you're just watching how, by the way, you're going to get up there and you're just a number. A, a legal name and a number, you're called up and here it is. Black and white, this is what you've done, here, go for it. You feel as vulnerable and alone and a wreck as could be. Can't imagine. If that's uncertainty for someone here, I can't imagine these guys being told, I know you followed me, you've left everything. You left your careers and you followed me for, for religious duty and now religion's going to kick you out of the temple and now, by the way, you're going to be murdered. And so when he says, sorrow has filled your heart, two things. No kidding. Absolutely. There's no doubt on earth. Sorrow has filled those men's hearts. And secondly, give them some credit. Because they are a wreck and they deserve to be. Verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the, the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. Actually, stop right here because there's a lot in verse 8. Look at this. Back to 7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. So, if this didn't get even more hurtful for the disciples, oh, by the way, you lost your jobs. Now you're losing all religious reputation. And I know I've got I'm all you have left. And now that I'm going away, it's a good thing. Think about the mind of a disciple hearing this for the first time thinking everything we know is gone and now you are the only thread of attachment we have to life and now you're going and now you say it's an advantage. 
Why? Because he says, I'm going to send you a helper. He's going to come to you. He says, but if I go, I will send him to you. Verse 8. What does he do? Here it is. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 9. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. In layman's terms, the Holy Spirit does three things in this particular case. Convicts the world of its sin. Convicts you and I of our righteousness and self-righteousness so we're ever not too pompous and religious to think we're somebody special that we're not. And thirdly, condemn the ruler of this world, the enemy who holds everything down in the area of darkness. Think about that. Convicts the world of its sin. Keeps, up, keeps us grounded to make sure we're not so like, oh, well, this religion's to be found in me. And then obviously to condemn what? The one who's always been condemning us. I mean, look, we're very careful in this church not to talk politics. We don't do that. Not because we don't believe what's right or what's wrong. It's because we believe and we speak of God. We keep gospel-focused, pure and simple. But have you ever seen, outside of the Civil War, let's say, have you ever seen a nation more divided or polarized politically than it is now? I mean, I don't know about you, but I remember years ago, there used to always be, you always read these polls, well, you know, 40% Republican, 40% Democrat, and 20% independents think this way. I don't think you could find more than a couple of percentage points of independents now. I think people are just like, they're so polarized that they jump one way or the other. And so when you start to see bad things happen, if you think politics will fix it, naive. The only one who's going to convict the world of its sin is God. You know, there's no political party that, that ended slavery. It was individuals that were spawned by the Holy Spirit to do something amazing. To go out and take a stand. That is what started the revolution of, of, of emancipation. When you start looking at the, at, at the cruelty of life, it was like, you sit there and think, man, how could things have gotten so bad? And everybody kept looking for a people group to change things. In Nazi Germany, when you saw Jews just being taken in by the millions in concentration camps and, and, and executed, do you think a political party ever had a shot at having a rally in Nazi Germany? No. But the power of the Holy Spirit does something to move in people to start executing change throughout somewhere, wherever they are, realizing that one person with the Holy Spirit makes a majority. And all of a sudden they rise up and something happens. That is the Holy Spirit convicts the world of its sins, convicts us of righteousness to guide us into doing the right thing and to protect us from doing the wrong thing religiously. And then also to condemn the, the ruler of the world. Verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14. Don't get lost in this. I know it's a lot. There's a lot of verses, but hang with me. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So, you go back to verse 12 and he says this. 
I still have many things to say, but you can't bear them now. He knows there's so many things he needs to say, but not only is it just, he doesn't say, I don't have time to tell you. He says, you can't bear anymore. Remember, these men are absolutely distraught. They're a wreck. They're looking around and thinking, well, I don't know. I don't know what's, you just told me I'm going to get murdered. I'm going to lose everything I have before that happens. And, and he says, oh, there's so much more. You can't even bear it. But this Holy Spirit is going to do something. He's he's not going to speak on his own authority. Verse 13, go back and look at this. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. What does he mean by that? The Holy Spirit, Jesus, and the Father, and, and, and God the Father are all working together in the Spirit of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit does not move against what the Father would do. So Jesus is saying, everything he's going to do is going to be from me. Everything I've done is from him. So he says, you can't bear these things. That You're not going to be able to see him. Notice he's not saying it. There's a personality assigned to the Holy Spirit. He says, you're going, he says, he's not speaking on his own authority. The Holy Spirit does not interact separately than the other two parts of the Trinity. Think about that. Okay, verse 16. He says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. You talk about confusing. Stop right here. Think of the discussion they've had in what we call 15, 16 verses. I'm going. You're going to be murdered. It's better that I go. I can't tell you where I'm going because you can't bear it right now. There's a bunch more things, but you can't bear that. Oh, by the way, don't let your hearts be full with sorrow. And uh, when I go, by the way, you'll see me again. Because in 17, so some of his disciples said to another, what is it that he says to us? A little while and you're not seeing me, and again a little while and you're going to see me? And because I'm going to the Father? Are you catching, by the way, how they're probably delivering us to each other? This is not speaking, being spoken in the King's, King James English of, well, I wonder where he's going. No, no they are just absolutely at a place of... of a befuddlement to think, what is he talking about? Verse 18. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Now, let me stop right here and tell you this. If we were to invent a religion, I've said this before, if we were to, if we were to invent a religion, it would look nothing like this. Nothing. I mean, let's just say we were to go out and build a system of truth that we would call a Bible, right? We would, we would pull together the scripture, we would, we would think there are pillars that we have. I mean, people we really look up to. And first, we would name those. Oh, by the way, we wouldn't, we wouldn't put them in there if they had been drunkards or murderers. We wouldn't have done that. The Bible does. We would not have pulled together a Messiah, a deliverer that was born of a lineage of, oh, by the way, there's a prostitute in there. There was, a, there was a king who was never really fully appreciated. No, we wouldn't have done that. And then, by the way, when you give your a set of believers 12 men, 12 men who will follow, you wouldn't have put under that one, sold them out, and ran away. And then that the others would sit there and question. You wouldn't do this. These men have every right to say what they're saying, but if you are going to invent a religion, it will look nothing like what you have here. These men, by the way, are all going to have deaths that they never thought about, never imagined. You can die for 
a belief. You can. But you're not going to give your life up, most likely. You won't die for a myth. You won't die for a legend. You won't die for a good teacher. You will die for what you totally believe in. And this is what's about to happen. And so when these men start asking these questions, they have every right to. Verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, oh, by the way, I don't know if Jesus heard it or Jesus just innately knew it because of his, uh, the, the power of who Jesus is. He says, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Well, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into this world. Every woman here is going, amen. Right? So also you have sorrow. But I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy away from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you're going to receive, that your joy may be full. So basically, Jesus looks at him and he says, I'm so glad you're asking me not to speak in metaphors. I'm so glad you want me to speak like this because I'm telling you, I'm doing the best I can to tell you what you can bear. There are things you cannot bear. But understand this, you will weep and lament. And when he says weep and lament, the only times this is used is when people have lost someone in their family. You're not just going to cry. You're going to weep and lament as if you've just been told of the one you love the most has died, tragically. And just there's that kind of feeling you're, that's what you're going to have. He says, it's, it's like a woman having a baby. It's kind of like when I visited Caitlin in the hospital. Walked in. Caitlin gave me the look of like, go away quickly because I'm in agony. And, uh, and she's saying to Amy, her mom, she says, it was her first child. She said, um, women really do this more than once, you know. Now, I'm sure if you were to ask Amy now, it's like, hey, I'm, uh, Caitlin now, I'm sorry. You would ask Caitlin doesn't remember that pain as much. But then again, you were like 11 days past pregnancy. Probably she probably does. But at the same time, there's a sense of... There's a sense that you just kind of... You don't remember the things because you see the beauty of life. Jesus is saying this. You are going to weep and you are going to mourn. And then you're not going to ask a question. You aren't going to say one thing. Is that being cruel? Is he telling them because you weep and mourn you have no right? No. He says, your weeping and your mourning will go away when you get it. Something's going to happen to you. And everything's going to be made known. And all of life will come together. Go back and look at me again at verse um, 24. Remember these incredible words uh, in here that you don't want to leave out. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Whenever you start to see prosperity gospel being taught, that, oh, just, you know, drive by a million dollar house and just pray for it, it'll be given to you, stop. Well, and scripture says, yeah, it would 
you maybe make a point if you didn't put in my name in there. Anytime that you read the book of John and it talks about claiming something in the powerful name of God, it says in my name. You can't pray in the name of Jesus for something that's ridiculous. So where am I? Verse 25. He says here, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from God. I came from the Father and I have come into this world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. How many times have you men been so nervous if the girl you've dated or about to date or have dated, courted, had a father that was incredibly protective? You're thinking, man, to knock on that door is going to be the scariest moment. You, I mean, you're, you're thinking, well, how do I even interact? You want the respect of that dad so you can date the daughter. You, there, there's often times of like, uh, I see people that go through periods of time where they don't have any, um, they don't have a father figure in their life. And there's, you see them pay through that throughout their life. I think I've told you before, I've had an 85-year-old friend, um, Jim Sproul, 86, 87, how old he was when he went to heaven. But, I mean, gentleman. He was, this guy was uh, just a southern gentleman. Carried himself so well, always walked with a cane. You know, he came from nothing and built himself up. Was, uh, suffered kamikaze attacks in World War II. Uh, he was a tin can sailor and a destroyer. Went back to college, became vice president of Tampa Electric. You go to Valencia Gardens, you know, the old restaurants in Tampa, and just men would flock over there and just shake his hand like they're shaking hands of a legend. And something about Jim, he would always pay the bill. None of you are thinking, well, preachers never pay the bill, right? But at this point, he would always pay the bill in every capacity. And I'm like, Jim, let me pay once in a while. Let me do this. No, 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 no. One time I beat him to the punch. And I saw it, you know, it kind of affected him. It just did. I, it, 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 like, it hurt him. And I was talking to his wife later, and I was like, I didn't know Jim would take it so bad. I thought I was being slick, walking in, giving my credit card to the, to the um, maitre d'. I was like, make sure it comes to me. And she said, well, you know, he, uh, you know, his father left him when he was five years old. And he's had this fear that he's going to lose any friend that he's ever made. And I thought to myself, at 85 years old, 86, you haven't left that fear yet. But you know what's interesting is no matter how many times you and I go to church, you and I pray, we still think there's some acceptance we need from God. We still don't think we have full acceptance from Him. You go to prayer and you're riddled with guilt. Jesus is saying, my Father loves you already because you love me and because I love you. And so you'll see in John chapter 17 when Shale takes again one of the best books of the Bible that he called to preach. You will see that this is what 
Jesus starts praying for us. He prays for these disciples in such a way as says, God, protect them. Watch over them. And he starts bragging on them. Jesus is just has, it, one of his characteristics is he brags. He brags on people. We were out with uh, Luke Humphrey there at night, and his uncle was in town. And his uncle, I mean, if you, you talk about, how many of us judge a book by its cover, right? We say we don't. No, I like to not, but we do. And I, you know, I met his uncle years ago, so I knew what I was walking into. This guy, just um, big fella, you know, shirts barely fitting around him, deep southern drawl, you know, and just a hard-working guy. I mean, this guy is just jovial, blue-collar, Tennessean. And he sits down and starts talking about his family. And he starts talking about, man, this child here, this one, this. And he said, he says, I just got into foster care. My wife wanted to do it. And I said, you're crazy. There's no way. Then all of a sudden, I just felt the conviction to do it. And I told her, I said, I think we ought to do it. And he says, and there it was. And here, he says, there it is. And he just couldn't stop talking about his family. The beautiful thing is, you look at his family, his, his family's all mixed race of all the kids. I mean, you show you a picture of his family, it looks like the United Nations just sneezed out a family out of the General Assembly. It's just every color and creed in there. And he says this, he pulls out his phone, he goes, man, I don't mind if I get weak right now showing you this. I'm going to miss the eye, but it's all right. She's, this is my, my, my apple of my eye. She opens that picture, and there is the cutest, most beautiful one-year-old girl or afro stick it up and she's smiling. This picture will make your heart melt. And you're just watching his eyes water. These kids born into a place of uncertainty that have been given a father and at their age, at this little girl's age, she has no idea how much her father loves her. That he is sitting with strangers in Tampa showing a picture saying, man, you ought to see, look at this girl. And she can't even grasp it. You and I cannot grasp the love that our father has. I think it just hit me when I started thinking, how, how does he brag on me? How does he brag on you? You want to see what this person, who they are. And we live a religious life of running away. That is why he says, I'm going to leave you something greater than I am. The Holy Spirit that convicts the world of its sin and convicts you of your righteousness. To keep you from doing the things in religion's name that's wrong and to keep you on the path of righteousness to let you know when things are right. That conviction... The conviction is not just a feeling. That that conviction is the presence of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit described 2,000 years ago in the streets of Jerusalem is the one that is indwelling in you as a believer. What a remarkable thought. Verse 29. His disciples said, Ha! And now you're speaking plainly. You're not using figurative speech. By the way, I love that line. Didn't have to put it in there, but there it is. Finally, you're speaking in language we're going to understand. Verse 30. Now we know that you know all things. You do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. 
What does Jesus respond to that? Because they've just said now, now that we believe in God, Jesus says to him, says, do you now believe? He says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Last verse. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He has said this to you and to me, and to two groups I speak in here, one to the believer and another to the unbeliever. To the unbeliever, there's a choice. There's a choice to follow probably what seems like logic, the most ridiculous plan of religion you have ever seen and ever will see. That you actually have a a creator, one you engage into a relationship with. One who doesn't hold you down under the, under the fear of, 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 of failure. One who doesn't hold you down under consequences from which you've come. It's an opportunity to engage in a father in a relationship that says, no matter what you do, no matter what, no matter what you do not do, I will pursue you. And no matter how you don't even speak of how I am or what I've done or what I've done in your life and the lack of gratefulness, I have one, but one recourse. And that is to pursue you. That no matter how much you feel like you failed in my name, I will pursue you. No matter how much you begin to think, could I really be grasping this? Could I really be grasping this to be real and a relationship to be real? No matter how much you continue to doubt, you cannot escape the fact that he's pursuing you. We were speaking to a sociology class at USF one time, 400 students in this auditorium, and every, they, were, they were given opportunities to come up and speak on, for, you had 10 minutes to speak on your religion. So we had, you, know, you had different leaders, of different, um, some were Christian, some were, uh, other, were, were not. And they would come up and they would speak, and I mean, I'm, I'm three years new into being a minister, and I'm like, what am I going to say? I mean, some of them were incredibly boring. I'm like, okay, maybe I could come in after that guy. And then someone got up there and they were just funny and had everybody rolling. And I didn't know what to do. I remember I got up there and I got to the, to, to the platform. And the lady who introduced me was a um, somebody who probably, um, for some reason, had disdain for Christianity. And she was trying to push every possible button she could with me. You know, and I could see it. And she was telling me about her girlfriend that she said, yeah, we, we sometimes go to this place or whatever. And she, so she's trying to hit me with the fact, you know, she thinks this way or lives in this lifestyle. And, and the whole time I'm thinking my natural reaction is just to like, man, like Jesus loves you. My natural inclination is to love you. I would say that if somebody tried to come up and religiously try to ooh and all over me, but she finally says, uh, now we have a, because uh, I was, okay, a long time ago, I was a Baptist pastor. And she said, now we have a Baptist pastor. <laughs> like, you know, like, I mean, you know the reputation that has. And so I get up the, the podium, I'm like, and I just followed a speaker that had the place in stitches and that. I'm like, oh, 10 minutes? What do you say? 
I've got the reactions out there. There are folded arms. There are people leaning in. I had these six uh, girls from this black fraternity or sorority. They were like, I mean, they were like cheerleaders for Christ. They're like, bring it on, preacher. Come on. You know, they're, like, they're ready for it. You know, and I'm looking at them and they're like, come on, get it. I'm like, I'm trying. And I, I get up here and I'm like, and it just hit me. When Jesus said, you can't bear what I'm going to tell you. This is not enough time. And your mind can't grasp it. Where would I begin? I started thinking, what, would I, what do I say? 1,600 years in which the Bible was written. 66 books, 39 authors. The great canonization of the Holy Spirit moving what he did. How we've seen nations rise and fall under religious cloaks. And watching the Holy Spirit move in countries we never not thought possible. To watch Korea go from 3% evangelical in 1900 to 82% now. To see Korean missionaries over here. That the majority of believers speaking on earth right now as Christians are Mandarin Chinese. To watch a, a nation that doesn't even appreciate and allow religion. To see what happens. To see the... The, the unrelegated forest fire of the gospel in Cuba. You can't walk down two, two village blocks without stumbling or hitting into a church. What do, I, what do I say? All the good things? But no matter what you say, you think about the person that's sitting there who will, no matter how many answers, no matter how many questions are solved, they're going to doubt that they're loved. And so the only words I possibly I, I gave, I simply said, God loves you. And I went silent. Because I figured I had 10 minutes. I mean, it was a long 30 seconds or so. I said, you. And then the third thing I said is that he is pursuing you right now. And I sat down. There wasn't some thunderous ovation. There was obligatory amens from my front row group. But it was a moment when you realize through the power of the Holy Spirit, pastors need to put down sound bites. And sometimes just tell people they're loved and they're pursued. Sometimes we just need to get out of the way of what the Holy Spirit wants to do. And the best words sometimes are no words. And so I say to you as a believer, have you grasped lately that he loves you? Not for how much you've given, not for what you've done, not for what position you hold. Can you picture a God showing your picture and saying, isn't this beautiful? And no matter where you are, He's pursuing you right now. The disciples, James, son of Zebedee, was beheaded. Mark, was dragged through the streets of Alexandria until he was dead. James, the half-brother of the Lord, was stoned to death by the, San, by the Jewish Sanhedrin. Philip 
and Stephen stoned to death. Matthew, Simon the Zealot, Thaddeus, and Timothy were all martyred in their own individual ways. And Paul, for all his writings and all his teachings and all his following, was dragged into a courtyard and beheaded in front of an angry mob. There's no wonder Jesus looked at them and said, you can't handle what I'm going to tell you. You can't bear it. You will weep and you will lament. And then there will come a moment when you won't ask a question. Why? Because you will have found the joy that only we as believers can find. I can guarantee you this. When someone, you lose someone tragically in your family, you will weep and you will lament and you will be crushed and you will be low. And it will hold you up. will not be remembrance or mem- memories, but will hold you up as a joy that is unspeakable. A joy that is unrecognizable in those who are not believers. And that is why Jesus said, you will know everything in the end and you won't ask a question. I can't wait. I always hear people say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask this. <laughs> you ain't going to ask a thing. I think we're going to, our jaws will drop and we will be in awe. And everything will have been understood. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for the privilege we have of, of you being our Lord and our shepherd and someone who guides us in every capacity. The Lord, we thank you for thank you for the story in the book of John about what went on with the disciples. Lord, we look at that journey that they took, and, and God, they were scared to death, and they were, they, they were given um, information that God, I can't even imagine how they received it. God, thanks for allowing us to see into that picture. Thank you, Jesus, for allowing us to grow closer with you. To know what it means to be pursued. To know what it means to be loved unconditionally. You don't love us as if we loved you or or, or do enough for you. Father, you continually shower us with that love. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for the beauty of the church you've given us that we can worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.